realize it's 8.45 at night. It's past my bedtime. So I'm gonna try and uh, go as quickly as possible. See on this side, everyone comes up. And on this side, there's like four layers of gap. So that's fine. Um, so uh, as you guys know, tomorrow is the feast of the Dormition of the Theotokos. Kulusenu um, Tutayibin, which I don't really know how to translate that. Um, and so I'll kind of go through some of the words uh, together and we can uh, figure out the, 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 the significance of this feast. First word is the word Theotokos. What does the word Theotokos mean? We say it a lot. We should know what it means. So like the, 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 the mediocre translation is mother of God. That's the one we go with. Um, but the better translation is the birth giver or the bearer of God. And the significance comes because uh, this word uh, came about because there was a heretic named Nestorius back in the fourth century and the third ecumenical council. Who knows what the third ecumenical council was? Eh, yes. You should just roar this out. So the first council was, we say every liturgy, the 318 ad, the 150 ad, and the 200 ad, very good, right? So Ephesus was the third ecumenical council, and there's a guy there named Nestorius, and he basically said that, sorry, it keeps banging, um, that, uh, that, uh, that Jesus' divinity separated from his humanity, and that at certain times he was, Jesus was God, and that sometimes he was man. And that St. Mary, when she gave birth to this guy Jesus, he was actually not God. He was just a guy. And so he liked the word Christokos, which means the birth giver of Christ. And then the church insisted and said, no, it's the Theotokos, it's the birth giver of God, right? So that he was God when he was born, right? And so you can think of the analogy, you know, my mom can say she's the mother of, of Mark, right? But she can't say she's the, she can say she's the mother of Archie, right? But she can't say I'm the birth giver of Archie, right? Because I became Archie after I was born, right? So same, same kind of analogy. So that's the word Theotokos. And then from that same ecumenical council, we added the beginning of the creed, which is the introduction to the creed. What's the introduction to the creed? We exalt you, Mother of the True Light, and we glorify your Virgin Theotokos, right? So that's the introduction that we added um, because of the, the heretic stories. Next word, dormition. What does dormition mean? It literally means falling asleep. And so to be sure, St. Mary died like everyone else died. Um, and we believe that she needs a savior, just like everyone else needs a savior. Um, and why is this so important? Well, in the history of the church, at certain parts in the Western church, they believed that St. Mary didn't die, that she just ascended to heaven like Jesus did. Um, and they believed this for a while, and I think back in, Vat uh, they reversed this opinion in Vatican II, which is like in 1967 or something like that. Um, where they moved away from this position and they said, no, she died like everybody else. Um, and, our, and our church believes, you know, in the Orthodox Church, we believe that no matter how holy you are, you're still going to die and you still need a savior. Um, and the whole human race is in this. So even if by God's grace you've never committed a sin, you're still going to die because death entered the world uh, when Adam fell. And what's the big deal about this? Well, the big deal is, if she never died, then she doesn't really represent us. She's not like us, right? I mean, I can't relate to someone who doesn't die, you know, because I'm gonna die, 
right? And so that makes her not a human being. That makes her like a robot kind of person. And there's bits and pieces of ways that people have tried to glorify her and said, you know, she was immaculately conceived and that she was without sin and that she was without Adam's sin and that she didn't need a savior and that she was a co-savior and that she never died. And people have magnified her to the point where they make her into some superhuman, right? And not even human, right? Because humans die. So she's like kind of this, 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 this robot thing. And in trying to praise St. Mary, you actually take away her praise by doing that, right? Because if she's incapable of, of having original sin and of sinning and it was just some mechanical robot, then there's no praise that we would give to her, right? She's just a machine, right, that, that gave birth to, to Christ. So we reject the fact that she didn't die. We reject the fact that she's immaculately conceived and because she's a person just like us. And that's important to us. And I'll get to why that's important here in a, in a bit. Um, and so when we look at this dormition, we look at her dying and we look at her passing and we see that she passes to Christ. And that's the road I want to take too, right? That's the, the path I want to take. And so ultimately she becomes the role model of what we're supposed to look like as Christians, right? Dying in Christ, right? Last word, feast. This isn't the last of the talk. It's just the last word. Um, why do we celebrate? Why do we have a feast day? On someone's death. It's kind of weird, right? So, you know, like back in the 1980s, they added MLK as a national holiday. MLK is what? Martin Luther King's what? Birthday, right? That's kind of normal, right? We celebrate George Washington's birthday, right? We celebrate people's birthdays. We don't celebrate the day they died, right? We don't celebrate the day Martin Luther King was assassinated. We're not going to, like, you know, have a national holiday on that day. But yet in the church, we only celebrate people's deaths. We don't celebrate their births, except for three notable exceptions. Who are the three main exceptions? Jesus, St. Mary, and St. John the Baptist, right? Because they're the three that had some, their birth had something to do with the salvation of mankind. But otherwise, we celebrate people's passing. And think about it, it's kind of a funny thing, right? I mean, like, you know, the 21 martyrs, we celebrate the day that people took knives to their throats and slaughtered them. That's the day we celebrate. That's the day we commemorate. You know, nothing else about them. And so St. Mary's passing, the reason we celebrate this is really a passing into life, right? It's, it's her dying with her Savior, her being ultimately found to be worthy to be with him. So when you look at this icon, What's interesting about this icon is say, Jesus is holding something. Who's he holding? He's holding St. Mary's soul. And so he's receiving her. And so this feast isn't about her dying. It's about him receiving her, about him bringing her into heaven, about her going up back to her savior. If you look at this icon, um, it's the same icon, he's holding her soul, but he's in a little uh, almond-shaped thingy. That almond-shaped thingy in an icon is called a Vesca Pisces, which literally means the gallbladder of the fish, but that's not important. What is is, is that anytime you see a Vesca Pisces in an icon like that, it represents something that's not visible to the human eye, 
right? Some sacred moment that transcends time and space, right? Such as the resurrection, transfiguration, something nobody else can see. So in the icon, you can see that all of the other, St. Mary's there, all the apostles are around her, everyone's sad, right? But Jesus is there holding her soul, and that's the part no one sees, right? That's kind of like the, the portal, if you will, into heaven. That's whenever I see that almond-shaped thing in an icon, that's what that means. And so her festival celebrates her as the chief disciple, as the mother of the apostles, as the mother of Christ, right? As the, the person who was her, their go-to, the apostles' go-to when they had problems and they had issues. And really, she represents us because this is the path I want to take. I want Christ to be holding my soul when I die, when I'm laid there and all these people are around me, some of them crying, some of them happy that I'm dead, right? I, I, I would like it that if, if Christ was there, you know, accepting me and bringing me into heaven, right? So even though it's her feast, it's kind of my feast because she's this quintessential Christian, right? She's the model that all of us want to be at some point in time. And if you think about this icon, Jesus is holding her like a little baby in swaddling white clothing. What does that remind you of? A baby being held in swaddling white clothing. That one, right? So it's kind of the... Um, so it's kind of the reverse of the icon of the nativity, right? At some level, it sort of closes the loop a little bit, right? Because she gave Christ his flesh. And then when she passed, he took her soul. And ultimately, her flesh went back up to heaven, right? And so it kind of finishes that loop a little bit because it, it closes the cycle of them together. And there's another icon of that. So what's this icon of? It's the, it's, it's Christ, there's Christ there, and he's breathing into someone's face. Adam, right? He's giving Adam this breath of life. And, and what do you notice about Adam? He looks a lot like Jesus. And he doesn't have any clothes on, that's for sure. Um, thanks for pointing that out. <laughs> it's true. He has no clothes on, people. The man is naked. So there's Christ breathing into Adam's face, and what's he giving him? His image and his likeness, right? So on, on Saturday, we celebrated the Feast of the Transfiguration, and the Feast of the Transfiguration isn't just cool because Jesus did cool things and became really light and bright, but his transfiguration is what? My transfiguration. Isn't that kind of the objective of being a Christian? Is to be transfigured into the image and likeness of God? Right? And in the Friday Theotokeia that we say during Kek, the quote, that refrain that we say over and over again, he took what is ours and gave us what is his. Right? So ultimately, this is the objective of us as Christians, right? is to assimilate the characteristics of Christ, to think like Christ, to talk like Christ, to walk like Christ, to act like Christ, to love like Christ, right? to be Christ's words on earth, to be Christ's reflection on earth. Right? That's kind of the goal. And St. Athanasius said it, you know, the, the patron saint, right? God became man so that man could become God. 
And St. Irenaeus has this similar quote. He says, Christ became everything that we are so that we could become everything that he is. So this is, this is the objective, right? This is the bogey. This is what we're trying to do, is we're called to be like Christ in every way. And this is what we celebrate on the Feast of St. Mary. We celebrate her death, but we celebrate her resurrection, her movement into life, and her ultimately assimilating and becoming like Christ. And we'll talk about how that happens in a bit. So now in this icon, she's clearly dead. And the church insists that she, fall, she fell asleep and she died. But it's a deathless death. Death is a passage into life. It's a translation into life. There's a beautiful ancient hymn that says, in giving birth, you remained a virgin, and in falling asleep, you were translated into life. So for us Orthodox, she's the ultimate disciple. She's the model of what we're all called to be. And she was with him all the time, never separated from him. And like us, she died. And she's going to, she was, we're going to die. And in her death, she trampled death by death because she was with her savior when it happened. Now, regarding her death, there's no, there's a step right there. Um, there's no evidence that she was martyred or persecuted or tortured or anything like that. Um, in fact, we don't know very much about St. Mary. Has anyone ever here been to Ephesus? So if you go to Ephesus, you can visit her house, which was discovered just a, a few hundred years ago, miraculously, interestingly enough. Um, and th there's accounts that that's where she lived until she died. So we don't know, we don't, there's no record that she was killed or, or tortured. But we know that she suffered. She suffered like no one else. And so if you look at this icon, and this is the litany that we say in the ninth hour of the Egbeya, when the mother saw the lamb and the shepherd and the savior of the world hanging on the cross, she said as she wept, as she wept, as for the world, let it rejoice in receiving salvation. But as for me, my inward parts are burning with pain within me when I behold your crucifixion, which you patiently endured for the sake of all of us, my son and my God. I love this icon. This icon is in the Coptic Museum, by the way, if you want to visit it, if the original is there. I, uh, you're not supposed to take pictures, but I took up my camera and I took a picture. I have no problem doing that. Um, I don't even know why that rule exists. I mean, I'm not using flash. It's not important. Okay. Um, so this is, this is one of my favorite icons. It's her just beholding the crucifixion. There's a story about St. Macarius. Once he was in ecstasy, and you know, when he went into ecstasy, he was just kind of transported to a different place. And when he came back to himself, his disciples said, you know, Father, where were you? You know, tell us where you went. And he said, I want you to tell no man but I was standing next to St. Mary at the cross. And he said, oh, if only I could weep that way. So he was with her at the cross and he watched her weep at the cross. And I wanna give you a quote that I'm gonna to refer to a couple of times here. St. Siloam says, the greater the knowledge, the greater the love, the greater the love, the greater the suffering. All right, so follow with me, the greater the knowledge, the greater the love, the greater the love, the greater the suffering. And no one knew him like St. Mary. No one had knowledge of Christ like St. Mary. That's his mom. She raised him. 
She taught him everything he knew about being a human being. When he fell and scraped his knee and cried, she's the one who comforted him. When kids picked on him at school, she's the one who talked him through it. She's the one who taught him how to communicate. She's the one who taught him how to interact with other people. She's the one who taught him how to be patient and kind with others. She taught him his humanity. And so sometimes we focus a little bit too much on her just being the birth giver, which is why we don't use the word birth giver, we use the word mother. Because she's a mother in every way. And that relationship of love is one that continued throughout his entire life. She raised him, she gave him his humanity, and she completed for him the, that part of him. Again, the greater the knowledge, the greater the love. And so because she knew him so well, no one loved him as much as she did. None of his disciples, no one he healed, no one loved Christ on earth as much as his mother did. Which means no one suffered as much as she did. And of course her knowledge of him was, we don't even know, right? Because it, it, it said about her that she would keep these things in her heart. So we don't know all the things, right? In fact, but we get these glimpses, right? Do you guys remember the very first miracle? What was the very first miracle? Turning water into wine, right? And what happened? At this point, Jesus hadn't, hadn't done any miracles. And so she said, do whatever he says. He, they have no wine. So she knew he could do something. How did she know that? I don't know. But she did. She knew something that none of, it, none of us knew that were not recorded in the Gospels. Right? She knew he could do something. So she had an intimate knowledge of him that's greater than what was written in the Gospels, obviously. Right? And so this suffering, because of her knowledge and because of her love, it wasn't just at the cross, although she was there. Her suffering continued. So Mary is not the great exception. She's the great example. She wasn't exceptionally conceived. She wasn't conceived without human seed. She didn't bypass salvation. She didn't bypass death. No, no. She went through all of it. All of it. Everything that we go through. And so she exemplifies this Christian life because ultimately we're called to suffer with Christ. Christ tells us, carry your cross. He says, suffer with me. That's what we're called to do. And she did. The greater the knowledge, the greater the love, the greater the love, the greater the suffering. And so now I want to get to this last part, the suffering. It's important to realize that sometimes we think that we're not supposed to suffer or that somehow our prayers are supposed to relieve suffering, to remove suffering, and they're not. Our prayers are not meant to remove the human condition. Our prayers aren't meant to stop death. That's not what we pray for. And here we see the ideal Christian, the Theotokos, and we see in her all that is in us, pain in this world. Many of you have suffered. Many of you are gonna suffer more. Many of us have seen a lot of suffering. And this is the human state. And she was not spared from it. She dealt with all of it. Can you imagine the feelings of watching your son go through what he went through? 
Because I'll tell you, as a parent, many of you are not parents, I can tell you that as a parent, it's one thing to suffer, and it's a very different thing to watch your kids suffer. You can do whatever you want to do to me, but if you do something with my child, Papa Bear comes out, and Mama Bear comes out, right? And you all, hope you all know that if your life was ever threatened, you know, by a wild animal or something, that your parents, without hesitation, would run in front of whatever animal was threatening you. Like, I wouldn't even think twice. Right, so that's the kind of love that a parent has for their child. And I would much rather feel the pain than watch my child feel the pain. You, you know, you, you've probably experienced this a little bit, right? When you're really sick and your, your mom says to you, I wish I was sick instead of you. Do you think they're just saying that? Not even a little bit, right? Parents wish they could take whatever it is they have their, their kids go through upon themselves. So it is more painful to watch your child be in pain than for you to be in pain. And so St. Mary had to deal with that. That was her kid. And he's the one that got betrayed. He's the one that got talked about, right? Can you imagine if someone of the youth here, one of these you know, young persons in the church, so walking around and all of a sudden the Abunas said, hey, this guy, this kid's a troublemaker. Get him out of here, kick him out of the meeting. And then Emma Serapion said, kick this kid out of the church. He's not allowed back in. What do you think would happen to that person's parents? They get gossiped about, wouldn't they? They have no devoyes, right? That's the, that's the mom with the, with the messed up kid. That kid got kicked out by Abuna. That kid got kicked out by Emba Sahapion. And everybody would be gossiping about that woman, wouldn't they? And that woman would walk into church and they'd say, isn't that your son, the one who got kicked out of the church? Well, it said that Jesus was kicked out of the synagogue and anyone who declared him was also kicked out of the synagogue. Can you imagine what the women in the village did to his mom? The looks she got, the little comments she got, the amount of betrayal from lifelong friends when they found out that she was no longer kosher with the, with the Pharisees and that they no longer looked highly upon this family. So she felt all that pain. And she watched her son do nothing but good and then receive nothing but bad. And then the pain that he felt, you can multiply by 10. And that's the pain she felt. Because that's her boy. That's her son. And it's a sense of helplessness that you can't help your child. It's a horrible feeling to watch them suffer and you stand around with nothing to do. You see these parents of children's hospitals? You should go there sometime. They're besides themselves, right? Their child is sick and there's nothing they can do about it. And if you ask them, can I cut your heart out and give it to your son? Absolutely, take it. Would you cut off your right arm? Absolutely take it, if that's what would fix him. So that feeling of helplessness, of watching all of this happen, it must have been so difficult. And then comes the trial. They're gonna try him. He's done nothing but good. He's only helped people. He's only healed people. He's only 
talk to people about their issues and problems. And then he gets arrested. And she must have thought to herself, you know what, now there's no way this is going to happen, right? He's going to pull a rabbit out of his hat at some last minute, right? He's going to do some miracle thing, and all of a sudden they're going to let him go, and angels will come down, and he'll transfigure. And then he gets arrested, and no angels stop anything. And then they say, we're going to beat him now. And she thinks to herself, there's no way they're actually going to beat this guy. And then they do. And then he bleeds. And she watches him, and they, they, you know, they take him, and they... They display him for everyone to see. This is what happens when you break the rules. And she watched him and she must have thought to himself or herself, you know, he's gonna get healed, that you know, he's gonna heal himself, and something's gonna happen, and something miraculous is gonna happen. But watching your son get beat like that must have been something. And then the cross comes and she thinks to herself, I'm sure he's gonna throw this cross here in a second, or he's gonna no, there he goes up on the cross. Even the thieves were telling him, why don't you come down? You've done all these really cool things. Why don't you come down off the cross? And you guys know that the, the process of crucifixion wasn't like 15 minutes, right? It was like eight hours. And she stood there, it said the whole time, watching her son die of agony and pain and scream and deal with that smell and all that came with it and the shame, and watching all her friends cuss him out. Because, you know, that's the tradition of the crucifixion, right? Everyone shows up, and then they cuss out the person who's being killed. That's why everybody showed up. It was kind of a show. So she's sitting there watching everyone cuss her son out. People he's healed, people he's helped, people he's forgiven. And I'm, I'm sure she thought, he's not going to die. They're not going to kill him. This guy could do anything. He could resurrect people from the dead. And then he died. And she thought, maybe he's going to come back really quick. But then, even then, she had to sit in it for three days. My son's dead. I can't believe he's actually dead. They actually killed him. For three days, she must have gone through all the stages of grief, right? Disbelief, anger, depression. Imagine the feeling for three days knowing your son is dead after all that he did. And so her love and her compassion for us doesn't stem from some magical super robot person. It stems from a person who's been through it, been through all of it. Everything life has to offer, everything ugly that life has to offer, being betrayed, being lied to, being persecuted, and so her humanity is shaped by this perspective and that's why we believe in the church that she feels what we feel she gets what we feel what we get she gets our suffering she's not immune to it in any way shape or form she can relate to us on a, on a level that we can't even imagine and so she's our mom because she feels what we feel and she feels our pain. And so many stories of, of miraculous interactions with the Theotokos end like this, where she says, I know, I know. When someone complains about a disease or an illness or some kind of suffering that they're in.
debating whether or not to say some stuff, but I'll just skip because it's probably going to be late. All right, so just to kind of bring it back, in order for us to reign with Christ on his throne, we must be crucified with him. And that's exactly what happened to her. Because what is his throne? We say this really long hymn during Holy Week on Good Friday. What's his throne? Deacons. Above him. Hmm? That's right. We say this really long hymn, Pekathronos, and it just means thy throne is forever and ever. And so we're, we're looking at the cross and we're saying, oh, I want to reign on your throne. You know, the throne of a king is like a really nice place, but this throne where you reign is a cross. And so he says, if you want to come on this throne and be part of this kingdom, this is the throne and this is the crown. It's a crown of thorns and it's a throne of a cross. So this struggle, this crucifixion, this is what Christianity is. This is how we end up. This is why we all wear crosses, right? And this persecution happens to all of us and this struggle happens to all of us. And in the end, our only answer is what? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so this is ultimately what Mary did. And this is why we love her so much. We see in her the best of humanity, the model of humanity, the role model for all of us. And she can relate to us. She feels what we feel and she gets us. All right, last thing I'll say is we prepare for this feast by fasting for two weeks. And it's a time for preparation. It's a time to reflect on her as you, you guys have had this nahta every single night. Someone's come and talked about St. Mary and some of her characteristics and all this stuff. But I want to point out one thing. It's not a time to fast for her. She doesn't need you to fast for her. And we don't believe in a system of works. We don't believe in a quid pro quo. We don't believe that if I give St. Mary some fasting, she's going to give me some stuff back. And sometimes our fasting can devolve into something that looks like that, right? Where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to fast extra hard. I'm going to fast without fish. I'm going to fast without oil. I'm going to fast for three weeks and four weeks. Why? Because it's St. Mary. Well, why are you doing that? Well, because my, I really want to get my son into medical school. I really want a baby. I really want someone to be cured of cancer. I really want this. I really want that. So what do you want? I want the world. I want a good job. I want money. I want education. I want a husband. I want a wife. Oh. The kingdom of Christ is not of this world. That's not what we ask for. We're not asking for the world. We're asking for his kingdom. And so sometimes we, we treat the saints as like a cosmic vending machine, right? I'm gonna give you this fast, I'm gonna go extra hard, no sushi for me this two weeks. But in return, you know, my medical school application, you know, just a little extra blessings. Now the problem with this kind of quid pro quo system 
that's my incentive and that's my motivation, is what? What happens when I don't get what I want? What happens when God doesn't heal the person I told him to heal? Or I don't have the baby I wanted? Or I don't marry the person I wanted? Well, people get upset. People turn on St. Mary. People turn on the church. People turn on God. And they say, I prayed all that time and he didn't heal this person. He didn't fix it. He didn't do what I asked. And that's because we've set the system up not as a relationship between me and my Savior, but as a system of works where I do things and you give me things. Now, if you remember the, the story of the older son and the prodigal son story, what did he say? I've worked for you all these years and you never gave me a goat to be merry with my friends. That's exactly what he said, right? I've worked for you all these years and you never gave me a goat. I give you and you give me back. And because you didn't give me back, I feel like you don't love me. And the father is just kind of blown away. He's like, everything I have is yours. You're my son. You're talking like we're in some kind of work relationship, like you work at Chick-fil-A and I'm supposed to give you a paycheck at the end of two weeks, right? But that's not what this is. You're my son. That's not this. But that's what the, he said. I work and you give me. And we don't believe in that kind of system. So I'll end with saying, this is a feast for her, but it's mostly a feast for us. Mary is not the great exception. She's the great example. It's everything about us, our lives, our struggles, our difficulties, what we celebrate in her, we expect in ourselves. What God has given to her, we expect that for everyone who suffers and dies with Christ is raised with Christ at the same time. She shows us our destiny and she's a living proof of the gospel. She patterns the intimacy that we are called to have with Christ himself. And so I hope that on this blessed feast, we think about her in terms of her approachability, how much she's gone through, how much she's suffered, and how much she gets us when we suffer in all the ways we suffer in our lives. Glory be to God forever. Amen.